Do you find that you lawyer your children? They lawyer me, actually. I, I have to say, I, am, I may be accused of being slightly inconsistent because I cannot not listen to a good argument. So if, oh. you, if you give me a good argument as to why you need a third dessert, I may <laughs> go for it. Do you yell objection no, in your No, but house? I do tell my children that what they're saying is not relevant. <laughs> History, I'd like to follow me. Welcome to Hilf History. I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. And I met my guest, Mary Whiteside, while we were both backlot tour guides at Universal Studios Hollywood, the entertainment capital of LA. And when she suggested the subject of the Supreme Court, I was a bit stymied. I mean, I feel about the legal system like I think some others feel about history. It's all just a little dark, a little depressing, and just too damn hard to understand sometimes with the dates and the names and the precedents and an amicus, <laughs> which is why I immediately said yes, because Mary is not just a guest with a curiosity about this stuff. She fucks with the law. <laughs> She's a real lawyer and a mom and funny and cool and so smart. And this episode is a blast. <laughs> Before we jump in, though, I do want to send out a general high five because we just passed our one year anniversary. Yay! <laughs> we dropped our first episode a year ago. And since then, we have had such a blast probing the anals and meeting so many of you. So thank you for listening. It means the world. We intend to keep it up and keep going down. <clears throat> Please rise, you heard me, for episode 25, The Supreme Court. <sighs> we think lawyers don't do backlot tours. Right, why would you, why would you do be, that? be a tour guide? Okay, well... You have to think about why I became a lawyer. So mm. I, uh, my mother desperately loves security. Mm. So the idea of being an actress would was terrifying to her. How would you have health insurance? You right. Know? She couldn't have fathomed Obamacare at the time. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, can't be risky. So I guess trials are kind of like little plays. So I'll do that. Uh-huh. And then I – so I did. And I got – to do trials and I was like, oh this is this is terrible. But isn't there like law school in between like Oh yeah, no no be, and I was a history major. The... I was a history major. You were. And I took these great classes like inside the Soviet secret police and Hitler's Whoa. Germany and England and Ireland and yeah. all this great stuff. And then I got to law school and it was like torts <laughs> property. Mm. And I, I really I wanted to quit. I wanted yeah. to quit after my first year, and I should have, and I didn't. Oh. Not because I'm not good at it, but just because it's just not really, like, a perfect fit. It doesn't <laughs> It doesn't challenge all of my, my whole facet as a person. So what kind of trial lawyer were you? I did criminal defense. You were a criminal defense lawyer. I See know. that? Okay, now, and you know, I mean, this has to be something you deal with all the time, that we, all we know is law and order. Was there That's anything rare. that was kind of like law and order? Were there any days? Did you, did you I ever did. yell I had, objection? I had a, oh, of course you had to yell <gasps> objection. But no, I had this great case where they uh, accused my client of having an illegal weapon, these Chinese throwing star. And it looked, it was like basically kind of like a pocket, like a pocket knife that had four blades that you could open up. And he had prior criminal charges, so he wasn't supposed to have this. And it was like on a mantle mm -hmm. in his house. Like it wasn't. It was, you know, it was a decoration. Yeah. So I had gone to look at this, this artifact, this, you know, piece of evidence. And I looked, I opened it up and I, and I touched the, the blades and they were dull. They hadn't been sharpened. And my whole defense was that this is just, this is a decoration. People, he had like, you know, Asian themed apartment decor, you yeah. know? So, so I... And I hedged a bet that the DA hadn't touched it to find out that they weren't sharp. Uh -huh. So I'm like, well, how can this be a weapon if it's otherwise it'd just be like throwing a mug across the room at somebody? You know, yeah. like, that's not why the, these things are illegal. So I saved it till closing argument, and I thought thought that the judge wasn't going to let them take it back because it's you know it's a weapon, right? That's what they say. And so I'm like, when you get to look at this, you will find out 
that it's not even sharp. Whoa. And I, I like, you could rub it on your face, you could rub your finger on it. And I did this whole big thing. And I had, you know, I had worn like this Asian themed suit and oh. I had origami crane earrings and I did my makeup because I think about these things. Oh. And just to be like, you know, you present yourself. Yeah. That's what he was presenting his theme. And this wasn't a weapon. Anyway, we won. The, I, you know, we won the trial, but that was my that was my favorite. Oh, and the, Mary! And the judge was like, "I wasn't gonna let him take it back, but the way you said it, I couldn't not." <laughs> These are their stories. And I did, had this amazing transformative experience when I was a baby lawyer, and we went to we went to lawyer camp. So it was half trial attorneys, like experienced trial attorneys, and half acting coaches, and. <laughs> And so we would be like... There were so many hand jobs at, at lawyer camp. I, not by me, but maybe... <laughs> I, 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 there actually, I have a great story, but I'm not going to tell it because it wasn't me, but it was so good. Oh. Anyway, then they had actors come in and play our clients. Okay. So, and, and you would be, you know, you'd be working on your closing arguments, your opening arguments, and then you'd go to another session, you'd be crawling on the floor, growling like a dog, and, you know, and then it would be like a storytelling one. And I'm telling you, it awoken this this stuff in me because I, you know, I'd wanted to be an actress. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the acting coaches pulled me aside and he's like, you know, you're really good at this. And I was like, oh, thanks so much. Oh, <laughs> oh, wow. I, I kind of know. And then I didn't lose a jury trial after that because I could, oh, my, my jury selection was so much better. I could relate to people more. I could, I could, you know, paint a picture. It was, it was really great. It didn't so make you, me love, it didn't make me love practicing law anymore. Yeah. It just made me, it just opened up my eyes into like, oh, actually entertainment is a world that people live and work in. Yeah. And then I wanted to get to that place. And you're still a lawyer, but now you're a lawyer who wants to be an actor and still a lawyer or wants to be a lawyer until you don't have to be a lawyer anymore. I mean, that's the truth. Right. And then, and uh, you also have a great podcast that I love. May it displease the court. You can find it on Spotify. It is really, really fascinating. She has great guests. She's a great interviewer. And I learned a lot about law because I told you I've never been arrested. I've never been in court. I've never even been on a jury. All I know is what I know from TV and um, that it's just kind of fucked, that it's fu fuckery <laughs> in general. I really want to bring the law to people so that who, you know, I, this is not a podcast for lawyers, although they're welcome to listen to it. I love it, you know, but it's a way to kind of bring people into the world again like you who haven't maybe they haven't been on a jury or they are lucky enough not to be in segregated surveilled communities so they're right. not pulled over all the time and they don't have these interactions uh, they haven't been sued so they just don't understand how much law actually affects their everyday life mm -hmm. and how much the system has been designed and to privilege certain people and that that's how it works and yeah. we have these grand concepts of justice and liberty and fairness but, you know, what really goes on and who yeah. really, what's the power play? You know, as a political science and history ma major from college, I kind of bring that, like, systemically, what is going on behind the scenes? What are, mm -hmm. where are the power players? You know, that's what I like to look at. You assigned me this book, um, and it's called Injustices, The Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted by Ian Milheiser. <laughs> And you, one of the things you said was great about starting with this book is it's really readable. So for, readable. For, like, I didn't need to know a lot. He, he definitely is speaking to people who are like, what is that? And defines amicus and things <laughs> like that, which is helpful. Sometimes reading this book was like watching Michael Myers sit up behind Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> yeah. You know, where you're just like, bitch, you don't have any fucking clue. Right. I know. How bad it's going to get. Oh, anyway, but thank you. So thank you for the nightmare fuel. That is injustices. <laughs> um, why did you why did you recommend this book to me? Well, I thought it was great for you because he goes through. He doesn't just like it's not a, again. It's not a book for lawyers. So he goes through the history and the context of you know of how the cases have gone over time and how the court as an institution has worked much more for powerful rich sources and while we have these grand you know ideas of equality and due process you know they bend over backwards to help rich people mm -hmm. and they ignore these these principles that are written into the law yeah and in he brings all of that out and he fleshes it out and he tells a story like a great storyteller he contextualizes mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. so 
you can see, you know, it's like when you think about these these principles kind of in the abstract or just, you know, without the context of the unionization and, and the, you know, what the working conditions were like that led to people even trying to form a union and why all of this is necessary and then why management comes in and tries to crush it, you know. So he paints all of those pictures and and dark history is fa- and dark law and all that. It's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you're somebody who doesn't mm. like to get bored mm. and, you know, likes to get a little bit outraged every now and again, it's it's a great thing to kind of get into because you can get kind of pissed off about it and you can see how, oh my gosh, this is happening again. What I'm going to do is just try to give a really just brief quick overview of the origin of the Supreme Court and and a very basic discussion of what in the ideal (laughs) uh, world they were intended to do and how we even started. Then Mary, a bona fide motherfucking lawyer, is going to tell us about who she thinks were the best and the worst individuals to have served on the Supreme Court in history. I am so excited to hear your take on that. Um, And then I was going to do the same thing. Originally, I was like, I'm going to also find my best and worst, but I feel completely unqualified to do that. I read about them all, and every time I'd read one, I'd be like, that guy's the worst. (laughs) And I'd be like, no, wait, this piece of shit right here. McReynolds, what a cunt, right? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. Like the worst... The Human worst, being. the worst. And then I found myself getting really modern, which was fine, which is great. But I was like, I'm going to leave that to Mary. So I was like, you know what? I am going to um, arouse you all with a dark tale from the deepest bowels of some of the darkest criminal history in America. Um, but there's hope. But I promise this is dark and sad. And it really makes a uh, boy. Our, our, everybody's a cunt in this one. But there's hope at the end. I promise. Are you ready to fuck Mary? I am ready. what happens if you ever started a court case with let's fuck your honor uh probably a contempt warning i would think (laughs) you know i noticed um i'm a fan of your of your podcast and i noticed that some guests get uh offered whiskey and bourbon and and i was offered pastry and tea yes and uh you're absolutely right that is that is me a hundred percent but i did i did note the difference no well actually it was because i was ready to get there i said we have coffee or tea or and i was ready to give you a list and you were like tea hot tea big cup okay yeah but you i have do you want some whiskey no because i also offered you some cannabis you did you did (laughs) you did i forgot that (laughs) you can have anything you see in this place is yours yogurt yeah, you can catch him. <laughs> he can be a slippery little sucker. Um, all right, so we are going to fuck the history of the Supreme Court, and I'm going to start with, like, how we got there. So 1776, a lot of people say, is America's birthday. It's fair. It's a very exciting year. It is, however, of course, the year we declared our intent <laughs> to be independent from Britain. I'm a mom now. My daughter tells me all the time she's a grown-up. She declares all sorts of shit, and it doesn't actually mean anything, um, because seven years later, we win the war. In 1783, the United States uh, is the United States, America, we are separate from Britain, and it's, again, similar to a kid getting their independence, you're like, yeah, we fucking did it. Oh, fuck, right? Because we knew what we didn't like, but now we have a ton of fucking debt. We have all these divided states. We have to figure out how to get the money we need to pay for shit from a bunch of people who just decided we don't get taxed. We got to figure out our commerce and our security and who now is going to attack us because we don't have the protection. I mean, it was a fuck show, right? And it took a minute to figure out how we were going to do things differently than the system we just bucked off. That four-year period of time is called the Confederacy. Um, Not to be confused with the Southern Confederacy, but they did love that. That was sort of the time before the Constitution, before we decided to put all these laws in place. Because in 1787, um, the famous guys, you know them all, they have white hair, Uh, you probably played them in some elementary school play. We get the Constitution, and one of the things in the Constitution is the establishment of our three branches of government and the checks and balances. And those, those branches are the legislative branch, which is your senators, your Congress people, they are Congress at the highest point. They, among other things, make the laws. They write the laws. Um, Then you have the executive branch, president, vice president. I heard, I read 4 million people work under the executive branch. Wow. That seemed like a lot. It does seem like a lot. Um, The the top, of course, the president, that uh, individual can, of course, pass or veto the laws. 
that your legislative branch sends uh, to them. And the judiciary is the branch that then determines, interprets the Constitution and and uh, evaluates these laws when they come up to question. The Supreme Court, of course, is the highest. They generally do the big shit, the nat- federal stuff, stuff between states, things that are appealed and pushed up the line. And the difference is president appoints judges, the Congress approves them, but they get them lifetime terms which is problematic. It's the closest thing to royalty we have in the United States is our Supreme Court because they serve until they dead or they don't want to anymore. And one of the things that the Supreme Court does in their in their thing is interpret the Constitution. And some of the things that these um, friends have to interpret is what the founding fathers intended. Do you ever struggle with that idea, Mary? What was the intent you that know, has to be God, one of the hardest. I actually don't um, care what their intent was mm. um, because most of them were slavers. Yes. They did not care to give women a voice. No. So I, I'm interested, you know, kind of in how it went, but I don't think it's the be-all and end-all for me mm. in well, constitutional and also- interpretation. And I guess you'd have to figure out whose intent you meant, because there's sort of this idea, I think, when we talk about the intent of the founding fathers, that they were ever a truly unified group, in addition to being kind of bastards on an individual scale, was the fact that they were not at any point truly unified. Um, You have the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. These are our founding fathers against each other. The Federalists includes Washington and Alexander Hamilton. And then you have the Anti-Federalists, which is Jefferson and Madison. And they are super ideologically different. And here's, and you please jump in at any point, Mary. Correct me, please, Jesus, correct me. Do not (laughs) let me run with the dumb stuff. But here's how a simpleton like me sort of understands the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists in this early 1780s division. Is they all agreed we can't have another king. Tyrants are the worst. And lowercase italics, freedom is the best. On that point, they agree. The um, anti-federalists are saying the federal government is that tyrant. The strong federal government is the tyrant that we are all afraid of. And the federalists are saying, "Uh uh-uh, the federal government is the only thing that can keep the tyrants down. And this is okay because our federal government has the balance in these three branches. So it can't be the tyrant, but it's the only force strong enough to keep the tyrants down. And they uh, back and forth um, forever to today. Till today. And, and what these, so they have to, inter- so the first thing, we have to interpret what did the founding fathers intend? Who fucking knows? And which founding father? Right. Or do you want to try to imagine that they all held hands at some point and delivered some unambiguous intent? Neither of these things are true. Do you feel in that general history that I have missed or omitted any important element to like get us on a founding well i think there's this mythology about the judicial branch that is important to understand is they the reason that they were the theoretical reason that Mm. they were given lifetime appointments was to remove them from the political process make them quote unquote independent so that with this idea that their independence could then allow them to do justice, even if justice was something that um, the people would be against. And a lot of times you'll see like Brown uh, Brown versus Board of Education being an example of this happening, you know, pushing desegregation when everybody didn't want that. Right. But this idea is... is, uh, more mythology than it is reality. I mean, judges are not apolitical. And the current Supreme Court is anything but. Yeah. And so this exploitation of a lifetime appointment with this kind of, oh, but they're apolitical, you know, yeah. where, where is why we're in this pickle. Please start with uh, the good news. The good news. Let's give us the shot in the arm and let's start with the Supreme Court justice that you have deemed the best. Okay, so I will say, I know this is a history podcast, but (laughs) I have to say my my best Supreme Court justice is Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Right on. I think she is pretty great, though no one is perfect. No. You know, and I have a a slight criticism of her, but, but for the most part, I think that she's really great, and I think she's great for a lot of reasons. She comes from a more working class 
regular background. She's the first woman of color and Hispanic Latina on the Supreme Court ever. Nice. She was born in the Bronx. Right on. Puerto Rican. Right her on. parents are Puerto Rican. Uh, Obama nominated her, and she's been on since 2009. Um, she also, you know, a little bit of history about herself. Like she was a type, she was diagnosed with diabetes, type one diabetes at seven. So she understands what it's like to have working class parents, have serious medical condition. She, her dad died at 42. He, you know, was like a factory guy, mm. and I think an alcoholic. So you know, she. She came up, and she lived in housing projects in the Bronx. You know, she, mm-hmm. she came up through education. Her mom really valued education. She was valedictorian. She went to, I think she went to uh, she go? Princeton and Yale mm. Law School. So, you know, she really, she knew she wanted to be a judge right when she was a little girl, like by 10 years old, you know, lucky her. She yeah. was like, I want to be a lawyer. See, not like Mary. Mary was no. like, I don't fucking like this stuff that much, but I'll do it to pay my rent. And Sonia was like, I'm going up. I'm yeah, going I'm all the way. This. And she got into Princeton, you know, in part because of affirmative action. She she admits that. She owns that. She, um, you know, her standardized test scores weren't incredible compared to the rest of her resume. So that the, the fact that there was affirmative action helped her get into these great schools. And, you know, obviously you can see through her, her life and, you know, reading her jurisprudence, like she's very intelligent. So, mm-hmm. you know, she credits that. Um, as being something that was necessary to get to her where she is. And, you know, I really like the fact that she brings this perspective because she will pay more attention and she cares more about criminal defendants, people on death row, you know, and, you know, regular average people. It's not just mm-hmm. all about the money, the money, the money, the money. She writes these really researched and well-argued dissents. Unfortunately, she's in the dissent most of the time. Mm-hmm. And she leads in areas of, you know, criminal justice where I think a lot of people would imagine, oh, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she is this liberal icon. And unfortunately, she falls a little bit short. And mm. where she falls short, Sotomayor was there leading, you know, dealing with um, issues with criminal justice. I feel like RBG kind of let me down a little bit. Mm -hmm. At the end of the Trump administration, they were rushing to, you know, when when he, you know, it's coming up, it's like from July to the end of the term, they were rushing to kill uh, as many people on death row as they possibly could. I remember that, yeah. It was kind of crazy. And they were, so people when, you know, when you're on, you know, death row, you you have to get through your appeals and, and they can't execute you until you've, you know, gone through the process. And you know, these last few months, they executed more people than they had in 60 prior years. Whoa. Holy mm-hmm. Hannah. Yeah. So it was, I mean, so it was really... Just a, clear up death row. Killing spree. Just, yeah. Holy shit. And so they would run to the Supreme Court, you know, these these last minute appeals, and they would also have to go to the lower, to the district court, and then the, and then like the Fifth Circuit or the Eleventh Circuit, the Circuit Court of Appeals, mm-hmm. and then it would go to the Supreme Court. And a lot of these people, a lot of these defendants had credible claims that the lower courts are like, yeah, we, we need to look at that. We need to look at his his mental health status. We need to look at the quality of the evidence. We need to look at prosecutorial misconduct, you know, the you know religious issues, free speech. Mm-hmm. And they were like, we want to have hearings. Let's do this. And then they would do these emergency stays, staying, stopping the lower court from going through these fact-finding processes and saying, oh, no. We're going to be, the, the government say, well, I'm, we're going to be irreparably harmed, and we have to do this very fast. And then we get all the way, and they would push it all the way up from the district court to the appellate court to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court was just very quickly, oh, yep, kill them, you know, without writing decisions, Whoa. without letting the lower courts do the fact-finding. And so she wrote this, at the end of this, she wrote this dissent where she went through this about how this wasn't justice, that these people, they weren't giving meaningful hearing of mm. their very, uh, you know, credible legal claims. Maybe they wouldn't have all won, but maybe some would have. And instead, the court just stopped that process yeah. so that they could be killed quicker. And she named all of the different people that had been, you know, executed in the prior, you know, six months. It was like 13 people. Wow. that They were just boom, 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 boom. And... You know, I, I really respect her going through that because, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's something that's not that's not a group of pe- people on death row that's like people care about them the least. Sure. You know, they are the margin of the yeah. margin of the margins. The scent's got to be fucking juicy. Like, I mean, they, I mean, <laughs> it, it is essentially a like, fuck this and fuck you and here's why and how much fun to write. But it's also work. And, mm-hmm. like, these guys got lifetime appointments. Like, you don't got to get up and write a dissent if you don't want to. Like, you could just go play racquetball and then go to work later. Like, you can never be fired. You're creating work for yourself. So for her to make a point of dissenting on behalf of already executed individuals who were found guilty at some level and were on death row, um, I can see why that is an ad- admirable characteristic. She's putting that out there for future generations to take up. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it, it is, you're right, it's a ton, it's a ton of work. Mm-hmm. And she's been doing that also, and when I was talking about them rushing through and asking for these emergency stays, it's called the, well, it's kind of, I don't know if it's an official name, but we call it the shadow docket of the Supreme Court. Ugh. And it's, it's a situation where there are emergency applications, they're not fully briefed, you know, there's, they don't write these decisions, the court doesn't often write decisions explaining why they're, why they're making a decision, they're going through their legal analysis. They don't even necessarily attribute who voted which way. So it's it's really what they call it shadow because you just don't know. The shadow docket. The shadow docket. And it's because it's justice, but it's cloaked in secrecy, you know, which is not how it's supposed to be. And what's going on is more and more cases at the Supreme Court, they they are either granting or ignoring cases and not allowing them to go all the way up through this chain where they get developed, uh, the Supreme Court is, you know, ignoring lots of things that, you know, we they should hear. They get about 10,000 petitions. They hear maybe 80 cases. Mm. And four justices have to agree to hear a case. So when they, so when the court ignores, when, when ignores these petitions that she would grant a lot of times she has been writing dissents Mm. about that to let people know hey you know this was extreme lawlessness this is terrible police conduct and we're just not even going to take the case Mm. and so then it's over the supreme court won't take the case it's done yeah so it's like a death it's like a death of the case have her dissents since roe and in the recent years become more pointed, more grab. I mean, it's, she's just always yeah. on the loose. I mean, you're. <laughs> no, she did. She said, uh, a- I mean, there was one to quote, um, you know, when when they were talking about uh, juveniles uh, being sentenced to life without parole, she's like, the court is fooling no one. You know, she called went with Roe. She, uh. she said the stench of this, mm. you know, will not dissipate. You know, so she's using stronger language, you know, to to say, you know, this is this is really they're not following precedent. They're bound by no precedent, not bound. Precedent is their prior decisions. So the court should decide the same way it's decided before on the same issue unless something changes and there's a and there's a real solid re- legal reason yeah. to change it. Right. Right. They like prohibition. I mean, this was one when I did the episode on prohibition. It was it was so quickly adopted and therefore very easily to be quickly dismantled. Um, but other than prohibition, there haven't been a lot of quick <laughs> reversals. Or am I wrong about that? No, I don't think so. You know, and, and if you, you know, if you look at Roe, that was that was they they've was were a long coming, time. they were coming for that from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But there was no legal reason to change precedent. Right. They just decided the composition of the court changed. Right. Therefore, the ruling changed. Have you told us all of the best stuff about Sonia Sotomayor? I mean, she's living history. So her best is very likely, you know, to come. But here, because here's what I want to know. Okay. Why do you remain optimistic do you remain optimistic and and you know i mean you're you're still working within this system every day um what is it that motivates you to do that well there are avenues available for reform and i think that you know it's we got to fight for that there's that's your job wherever you are to fight to make it better so we can we can advocate to expand the supreme court the Mm -hmm. number of justices have changed throughout the years so they can change again. We've been, yeah. you know, these. I got it here. We got in 1789, there were six. 1807, there were seven. 1837, there were nine. 
1863, right after the Civil War, we were like 10. And then we're like, that's too many. So then in 1866, we went back to seven. <laughs> and then in 1869, we went back up to nine. And we've been hanging out at nine ever since. And all the reasons them numbers changed up and down throughout the years was in part um, because of who was being represented. The idea that we have been expanding this country. We've got all these new regions and all of these new uh, demographics that need representation. So the court needs to get bigger so that we have a larger representation on the court. It has been discussed now. Uh, it did. I did find in this book that when the last president that actively said, I'd like to expand the Supreme Court, maybe even up to 15, was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who's absolutely, without question, the most popular American president in history. He was the only one, he went through World War II, he was elected to four terms, I mean, he's, right, he's the guy. He could kind of do whatever he wanted, including crazy reaches of power that like no other president was able to do without crazy criticism. And he kind of mentioned he might want to expand the court up to 15, and he was hosed. People were like mad and they wrote nasty ass letters. And he said it was, oh, it was like he got he got stung big time for even suggesting it because on its surface, it looks like a very broad stroke to just fix what's in your way. It yeah. does look like the president who does have the uh, appearance and is often at times the individual, the kingliest like king person. And if they are just saying, I want to do this one thing for my benefit, it's easy to target a tyrannical accusation on that kind of thing. And he was absolutely like, yeah, I want to do it because I want to get all this new deal shit done. And I don't think I can do it with the Supreme Court I have. So I'm going to change the Supreme Court. And yes, <laughs> but when you actually have a legitimate argument for this court, does not accurately represent the population what do you do well i think you know when you look at the who who appointed you know republican or democrat most of the appointees have been from republican presidents they haven't won a popular election since the 80s right so you know they already have an outside voice based on the way the senate is run and based on the electoral college and so then you add this imbalance to the supreme court and you really run the risk of giving the that the majority voters in america don't have a say in how they're governed right. most of the time so that's an argument for expanding the supreme court you know because it has this yeah. also also you know, Mitch McConnell brought it down to eight when he refused to let Obama fill it. Right. That's right. We were living with eight. We were living with eight. Yeah. So, you know, that's and that another didn't time. didn't seem to be a huge problem. Right. right. That wasn't a problem for him. Right. You know, the argument is, well, if they, if, you know, they'll just, if, if, if the, you know, the, a Democratic Congress expands the number of seats, then when there's a Republican Congress, they could just do it again and back and forth and back and forth. But I think you need to look at who... You have to understand the Federalist Society, what its role is, the the huge, uh, enormously rich secret donors that have inserted themselves into American politics and, and into the judiciary and mm -hmm. into funding these, these, you know, since Citizens United allowed this unlimited dark money spending by anonymous donors. You have to look at that in terms, and mm -hmm. the public has to understand what's going on before they can understand why we can't just allow the Supreme Court to rule over us, and they can strike down. They'll they'll be striking down legislation, any anything that the executive branch does that they don't want, that they don't like, that doesn't comport with what their donors' goals are. Because you can look at, and Senator Whitehouse has looked at uh, Republican donor goals and the lawsuits associated with them, and the win rate, and they are undefeated. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, that's a clear evidence that, you know, there's a real agenda that they're pushing. Yeah. And we don't have to accept that. The first thing they always tell us, especially plebes like me, is uh, if you don't have a lot of money and you don't have a lot of time, then, you know, the bare minimum you can do is vote and then also tell other people how you want to vote and how they should vote. And that's the best. And you go, yes, 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 yes. And then your heart is just broken because then the, the world is like, ah, fuck, these fucks are also coming after the vote. Your vote doesn't matter. Your vote doesn't count. When you live in a place like California, you're just screaming into this big liberal bubble that doesn't matter. Whereas if you are in other states, your voice is actually heard more. And so I feel like it can be so heartbreaking and so easy to just say the bastards have won. 
I'm either going to move into a cabin in the woods or I'm going to burn it all down. And the truth is actually slightly more optimistic and slightly more tragic than that, which is uh, you can make a difference, but it is going to be small, incremental, and may not develop the fruit you're looking for in your lifetime. And that is why this subject does fit so well in a history podcast, because that is how history always works. We are these sad little skin sacks that get to live, if we're fucking lucky, 80 years right? And as we know, the movements of history are often significantly <laughs> slower than that. So it can always be the issue for a, a cognizant human being looking at the lifespan that they have and the lifespan of the world to feel like you're the d- devastatingly under some Zamboni of <laughs> like the movement of time that you can do nothing. And it's like, you're right and you're wrong. You're absolutely right. And you're absolutely wrong. And you will, with your, with your, you know, ripples, change the course of history. But yeah, you, you may never fucking see it. And you might find that you live in a time of terrific, terrific darkness. And it's going to take flipping through the pages of a previous time to find the light you're looking for. And that's maybe where we come in. And we have more coming up. Um, when we come back from the break, um, uh, my friend Mary is going to tell us, I mean, you thought that, I mean, we, you told us who you thought was the best and it was still kind of a dark fuck show. But now when we get back from the break, you're going to tell us about who you think is actually the worst, uh, Supreme court justice in the history of a bunch of, of assholes. So look forward to that. I am going to give you whiskey. I feel like you've deserved it. Awesome. Hi, I'm Hal Lublin. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. And we're the hosts of We Got This with Mark and Hal, the weekly show where we settle the debates that are most important to you. That's right. What arguments are you and your friends having that you just can't settle? Apples or oranges? Marvel or DC? Fork versus spoon? Chocolate or vanilla? Best bagel? What's the best Disney song? We Got This with Mark and Hal. Every week on Maximum Fun, we do the arguing so you don't have to. Oh, all answers are final for all people for all time. We got this. Hey, before we go back to court, a reminder that you can head to Instagram and see pictures and links to the stories and people we talk about at Hilth Podcast. And there you can also take the quiz. Like, do you know your rights? Do you know what habeas corpus means? You want to show us your jurisprudence? <laughs> well, you can when you follow me, follow me, follow me, follow Being around judges, uh, it's the closest thing you ever get to like being around kings because they have their own chambers mm. and they have their own people that work for them and their own like deputies that work for them and it, and whatever little idiosyncrasies the judge has, that's that is that everybody hops to. Have you ever had a desire to be a judge? I yourself? was actually recruited. I was uh, one, a judge. The judge, a judge I liked. I re- the judge I really liked. I thought was I thought wasn't changed as a person by being on the bench. And that even the best of the best, most of them are changed as people by sure. by the power. Yeah. But he truly wasn't. Hmm. And yeah, he was talking to me about it, and I was just kind of like, I just I don't know. I just don't. I really at the end of the day, I don't want my legacy being how many people I put in jail or prison. Yeah. And that's, you do a lot of that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you're, you're not always going to know what it is. And you have mandatory minimums and mandatory sentencing. And Mm. I I think the system, you just, you're, you perpetuate a system that's deeply unequal. And you have to campaign. And you have to campaign. And you have to pay your own money. No, thank you. It, it, being in the courts and seeing that kind of political stuff go around, it was interesting. So do you think, because this is, I, I think, a question when you get to, like, who wants to be a judge? Like, who wants to be a cop? Who wants? And you like to imagine that there are altruistic, uh, really good-natured, good-meaning people that are like, I want to be at this high level so that good people like me are at this high level. I want to help and I want to influence. And I'm looking at my friend Mary, who's a good person, who was just like, absolutely not. I couldn't be a judge because, yuck, those people have to do all the best. You know? And I I fear, as I think a lot of people fear, that the only individuals who are then (laughs) drawn to these levers of power are the assholes. How do you and how does one draw good 
motivations out of people in these positions and draw people with good motivations to these positions? Well, I think you can do a lot with uh, ethics and accountability. So you can give them standards. And if we look at the Supreme Court, they don't have any ethical standards that they're required to follow. That's a problem. So They don't even have to take off their shoes when they come. They don't have to wash nothing. their hands after they pee. No. They, they can don't have, have to do anything. Feces-covered hands. Yeah. <laughs> They could be grabbing that gavel with salmonella. Absolutely. Nothing to stop them. So, you know, I think a strong code of ethics that you're required to do full financial disclosures and transparency, including your close relations. They also should be required so that we just know you're not getting anything for other than your salary. You're not receiving right. other benefits. Right. And, you know, if you are receiving benefits, who are they from? Just transparency in that. I think that that's, that takes away, uh, you know, the darkness where yeah. things can kind of grow and mold. Objection, Your Honor. Speaking of the darkness and the worst inclinations of judges, this seems like a good way to get us into Mary's pick for the all-time worst Supreme Court judge of mm. all time. Okay, again, I apologize for the, for the recent history, but uh, it's Clarence Thomas. You were, had no doubt about that. I don't. I and girl, I'm doubt. telling you, this book, man, there are some real pieces of shit in there. And I will I can't say, wait to hear about why Clarence Thomas I think is your pick. There may be some recency bias from, from you know, just the also, fact that I'm Also, he stands on it. the shoulders of ogres. <laughs> exactly. So he's certainly as bad as, as the worst of the worst justices in the books. So he has all of, well, not all of it, but he has a lot of their own terrible qualities mm. and some of his own. Great. So I, I dislike Clarence Thomas the most. Uh, I, he, I don't think he ever should have gotten on the Supreme Court. Had Me Too happened earlier, mm. perhaps if we believed credible women or even really took a great interest in investigating their claims, which is the bare minimum, Mm -hmm. uh, we may not have Clarence Thomas, and he may not have paved the way for Brett Kavanaugh. Considered especially heinous. So there's that. I could go through his decisions. Uh, he's, he is the most extreme right-wing conservative, ideologically very anti-anything that I believe in. He also was super poor. So, mm. But he reacted to it in a different way than, than Sotomayor. So he also was a... Um, he also came up through you know, upper tier Ivy League schools with or through affirmative action. But he his experience of it was very different. And I think probably it's sincere. I think he was treated like garbage because he's if you look at him, he's very dark. He's a very, very dark black man. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely believe that he was treated like garbage and that he was told he was only there because of affirmative action and that he hadn't earned his place. His reaction to that, which is wrong, terrible, mm -hmm. scarred him, traumatic, I, you know, I'm presuming, and I can have deep sympathy for that. But his reaction is to embrace this idea of everyone gets to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. And I was kind of raised in this like purple upstate New York, so I kind of, you know, believed in this meritocracy, you know, in my own little bubble and you know, when you get out into the world, especially working, you know, as a defense attorney, I encountered people that just blasted that notion right out of the water. I had a client who had every disadvantage that I could think of. Uh, it was His parents were of low intelligence and low IQ, as was he. He was uh, sexually abused, poor, extremely poor, uh, mental illness, um, he had physical abuse, emotional abuse in the system, you know, is neglect, all of the things, everything, substance mm. abuse. I mean, I, I really couldn't come up with a single, um, you know, severe mental illness, a single thing that could happen to a person terrible that hadn't happened to him. Mm. And he had, a, you know, a really awful life, you know, but I thought to myself, well, would I have done any better given all of these? I know how hard it is to break a, a seemingly small bad habit mm -hmm. with the ability to get mental health treatment or not having, you know, and, and you know, having a, a, a normal or above IQ, you know, like how hard that is. What would it be like to have none of those things? And 
it was like, okay, so there just were no bootstraps for him. Hmm. You know, how could I, how can I really, you know, judge where he ended up? Yeah. Well, there's always that pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're like, you got boots. Right, right, (laughs) right. You have right. With straps. And Clarence Thomas, with these extreme conservative views, he kind of, uh, he's as a black man, it's kind of like, well, He's, you know, see, it's a, it's a black man saying it. So he gives yeah. kind of mm-hmm. uh, cover for all, for the majority of people who, uh, you know, hold these same type of extreme mm-hmm. beliefs. You know, it's fascinating reading this book, knowing that we have Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court and that he is one of the most conservative justices we've ever had. When the vast majority of this book really covers the extent to which the courts went to keep African Americans legally and technically defined as beneath the white race, as as how much white supremacy was really baked in. So much so that it started to actually make sense to me because Clarence Thomas is a black man, which on the surface makes you say, of course, he, he would be the iconic thing they were afraid of, a black man on the Supreme Court. But he is towing the line with so much more vigor that if you are poor, it's because you fucked up because there's something wrong with you or wrong with your family. There is some sort of a natural selection to poverty that um, the the way that the people are suffering is not a result of bad government, but a result of their suffering. <laughs> and what, what right do we have to limit someone's ability to take from them that which they feel is theirs? So Clarence Thomas, he is appointed by George Bush. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Um, the first. What, George Bush, the first, George H. The first of his name. Yes. <laughs> the first of his name. So after Clarence Thomas is appointed and through the the, the sexual um, abuse scandal that permeated his appointment, after he's appointed, what has his judicial life been like since his appointment? Well, he spent a lot of time in the dissent because they didn't, you know, the balance of the court was different. And so, and he was the most extreme. So he, I mean, I'm talking really extreme. Like he is fine with child labor. He's like, cool with that. That's, that's good. You know, my, my son was given this book about mining, the children in the mines. The Breaker it's, it's Boys? A, it's like Digging a Hole to Heaven. That's Jeez. the title of this book. Oh I'm like, God. right? I'm like, this is gonna be so dark. And it really, it's this great, you would love it actually. It's this great history. And it brings him, he's like, wait, these are kids my age. And this was what was allowed back then. And so it's this great understanding of what child labor really looked like. Mm-hmm. So tell me how Clarence Thomas would even be speaking to child labor when this is a this is a decision that was decided long before he came to the Supreme Court. Well, you have cases that come up periodically that deal with child labor. There was one uh, with Nestle that, was, that recently came up, I think last term or the term before, where they, they were contracting with different farms that had, chi- that had child slaves. So the issue comes back again and again throughout, you know, and that's through different cases throughout time. And so he would have the opportunity to be like, well, actually, I think it's fine that, you know, there's nothing that prevents blah, blah, blah. He wouldn't say it's fine for children to be used. Sure. And it sounds, and there's always that, like, I may abhor child labor. It was interesting in this book to see how many times justices would say how proud they were that they personally hated this decision, how proud they were that they were going to have a hard time sleeping for the rest of their lives because the very disdain they had for the law they just passed proved they weren't biased because they hated it and they passed it anyway because they were really, really, really sticking to the law. And that's why you should know I'm a good guy because I stuck. And it's like, you can kind of hear that in Clarence Thomas when he talks about child labor because it's like, I may abhor child labor. He doesn't exactly say that, but he says, um, but it's not, it's another country's practice and the United States doesn't have jurisdiction over them. And so who are we to tell a company they won't be able to compete if they can go and technically and legally, that is absolutely sound. And then they get a clap on the back for being willing to really stomach that horrible child labor thing for the right cause for doing the right thing. You're a really noble individual. I know it's really complicated because it's like in some ways, you know, do you want them to be ideologically driven? Do you not want them to be ideologically driven? Is it just the different ideology? I mean, I do think that those are pretty important 
topics to be talking about if any of that stuff was out in the open. If it was an open discussion as opposed to just like, well, I'm going to, we're going to look at the history of what happened in the past and what these founders used to say, and that's what I'm basing my decision on, when that's not really what you're basing your decision on. It's really how you feel about something or what you think about something. And, and but mm. acknowledging that is, 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 a, is something that the law doesn't want to do. They don't want to say that that's really what's going on, mm -hmm. when it seems pretty clear that it always has been. Right. Thomas, he very pro-death penalty. I mean, he can't kill them fast enough. <sighs> It, it doesn't care if the jury was racist, if the lawyer was incompetent, if the prosecution withheld exculpatory evidence. He's all about the process. And if you happen to find evidence of your innocence too late, it was had too much time had passed since your trial, forget that. I mean, he just really is just all about the process and upholding the conviction. Mm. It's rough, you know. It's Thomas rough is out there. And so he he was he, he was always all alone on those, and now. Now he's got, you know, some friends to join him in this. And so we've had this huge shift to the right. Mm -hmm. So where he used to kind of write these like screeds that, you know, was him on his own. Now it, the Overton window has moved and he has, you know, Barrett and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. And so Roberts can kind of come and go as he pleases and doesn't right. really make a difference. Right. Oh, and Alito. Ugh. Yeah. And the Voting Rights Act, again, mm. you would think that he would be a champion of the Voting Rights Act. He's a black man. He came up from Mississippi, you know, horribly, you know, poll taxes and all kinds of ways to disenfranchise. But he's, you know, not only was he happy to kill the, the Section 4 in Shelby County versus Holder, he also wrote a separate concurrence saying, actually, I'd kill the Section 5, too, because we've evolved as a country. We're not the same nation we were. And mm. we know what has happened since then. The history has continued. And all of these, you know, voter ID laws have come in and purging voters from rolls yeah. due to inactivity and, and, you know, limiting polling places and number days have all come in, again, chipping away at our fundamental right to vote. And that's how we change things is through our vote. So, yes. You must vote. You got to go out and vote. It's also really they're trying so hard to make it to make it our vote count less and less and less. Mm -hmm. So what can we do other than take up arms? Vote. I have to say my biggest problem with Clarence, and I can't stand any of that other stuff. So I hate all of his decisions. I don't like, you know, I I, I disagree with him. I disagree with his interpretation of the Constitution. I don't think that he cares about his fellow man and is not upholding, you know, liberty and justice and equality. He also married a terrible person. Okay, I'm really, this is so fun because like Hilf, even though we talk about fucking, and I do talk about like a lot of people fucking in history, like I never really get into like, ooh, juicy, pop culture, what's in the news? But this Ginny Thomas girl, she is bad news. Um, if you are deeply entrenched in history and are not current at all, Ginny Thomas is Clarence Thomas's wife. She was recently um, subpoenaed by the January 6th committee because she is tits deep in this stuff, man. She's yep. everywhere. We got text messages from her. Illuminate us on more about I mean, the... well, did you know Ginny was in a cult when she was younger? No. Yeah, she was in a cult and she had to be deprogrammed. So she was having trouble <laughs> I don't know if it took. I know. I'm not sure it took. Life Spring was the name of... Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, it was like supposed to be self-esteem boosting, but it was like these humiliation rituals where they'd like strip them naked and call them fat and stuff really awful stuff Whoa. anyway so she she was actually deprogrammed so the fact that she's kind of gone down these super conspiracy lanes makes sense actually given her history sure and uh yeah so she she was deep 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 and her family was super deep in the conservative party and they were they were like worked for goldwater and and mm. uh there's this journalist i can't remember his name but he lived across this he grew up across the street from her and his parents were republicans but they were like oh the top, you know, Ginny's family, they are, they are crazy. Oh. They are totally nuts. Oh. So she's like long time, long time nutter. <laughs> anyway, so she, she's married, she's this white woman, she's married to Clarence Thomas and they are both big into grievance. And she's a, she's a lobbyist. She has a consulting firm called Liberty Consulting. And she is deep into right-wing politics and she advocates and she lobbies and there's people 
clients of hers that have have matters before the Supreme Court or they submit br amicus briefs, you know, arguing to her husband, she's being paid by them. So the money's coming into the Thomas household and they have matters before the court. So there's a these mm -hmm. deep, mm -hmm. deep ethical problems mm -hmm. with her work and what we would call the, the appearance of impropriety, yes. if not direct impropriety. But you had talked earlier about this, like what the legal standards are, because you said there's no ethics. And I think sometimes, at least for me, whenever I've encountered an ethics thing, it's a, it's a soft, you know, sign this paper that says, we all agree that these are our ethics, okay, great. And it's not a binding, whatever. But it sounds like what you're suggesting is that there is a binding code of ethics that can instigate action that can stop and punish bad behavior. There's nothing like that on this. Not Court. at the Supreme Court. They don't have. How yeah. would something like that? I mean, is there any, any constitutional? Congress could. Right? Congress could pass a law requiring a binding code of ethics for the Supreme Court. They could. But do could that. the Supreme Court? interpret then, that law i mean this is where I mean, we start to get sure. to the question with this what we talked about at the very beginning of the balance of power That's so we've we were not at the time able to imagine a situation where we have a truly bad actor in a branch of government right so the supreme court would have to rule that it was constitutional for congress to limit their, their power, power by ethics. right Right, and they, they would have, or in the converse, say it is unconstitutional for the for the for another branch of government to control us, right? So to essentially admitting that there there is no check on their power, so you know that's a lot. I that's feel a lot like this to, is. I feel like in a way, this is truly humanity's rehearsal for artificial intelligence, mm. because if you endow a creature like the Supreme Court that is not any given thing, but is a p bunch of pieces of things that operate on various systems. And you just tell that entity to regulate itself. <laughs> How is that going to turn, I think, is a question that we, uh, I, we've already admitted we lack the imagination to see how these things can go. And, and we don't want to legislate based on our worst fears. You don't want to set up boundaries based on everybody's worst case scenario or you become very immovable, uh, immovable right? Um, but there's gotta be something in between. Well, so different justices have, um, they have their, their own circuits that they, that they are over. So Clarence Thomas is over the 11th circuit. And, and, Yesterday, he stopped a lower court's decision requiring Senator Lindsey Graham to testify in Georgia about Senator Graham's own efforts to intimidate the Georgia election officials. So why is this, why is this a problem? Well, because Graham's being called to testify about actions that he did. Ginny Thomas, it's been alleged that she was making very similar calls herself to Arizona Mm -hmm. electors. So Thomas is essentially stopping the inquiry into behavior that is really similar, nearly identical to behavior that his own wife was doing about January 6th and propagating this notion that Trump, uh, this lie that Trump won the election. So it's, I mean... That is so close to home, man. I mean, some might say corrupt, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, Extreme. And it's got to be, boy, that's a sticky one, because we are talking about an entire branch of government, the accusation that they are colluding with the head of the legislative branch of government, which means what, the only way to really make the accusation and the only way to really fix it is to crush the beating heart of our, of our central government. Yeah. I mean, it would mean the executive branch would have to just be like, fuck you, guy. And you, which they can't constitutionally. So it's, whew. But how do you untie that knot? I mean, you have to investigate, Ginny. You really have to get it. Who? And, and Who investigates? Congress has, to, Congress has to investigate. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, right. And then you have the DOJ. They're under the executive. Yeah, it's rough. We're in we're This in, is like your uncle started fucking your sister. Mm -hmm. And then your mom. Oh, -wee. I know. What do you think? Can you give me a prediction? Give me your give me give me your optimistic perspective on how this works out for the best. 
And then give me your worst case scenario. For the best, I think that they truly dig into Ginny Thomas, her uh, her knowledge, and if she had any advanced planning with January 6th, they look into, you know, what has been going on with Justice Thomas. I mean, there's lots of great uh, other alternatives to, to funding campaigns that would fix all of this. This great book, Unrig, by uh, Newman is the last name of the author, and it's like a graphic novel of all things. And it, it goes through different ways that citizens have come together and tried to fix problems in our system. And one of these is the way that we fund elections. And you can have public financed elections. That's one option where yeah. you just, everybody gets the same amount of money and... And it's so obviously the fairest way to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many, I remember my, my husband and I being like, why don't they just get everybody gets two commercials, two hours on public radio. You can drive all over hell. You can go wherever you want personally. And that's it. Yeah. So there are solutions. And that's kind of what, you know, what I like to talk about, what you like to talk about is there are solutions. We as... Uh, as the majority, need to get ourselves together and push for those solutions. Yeah. And I got to tell you, it's so hard. Even the possibility of having a corrupt Supreme Court does feel like watching them ice caps melt. You know, because because every time you start being like, I'm going to get an electric car, you go, oh, God, all these batteries. And then we don't have enough charging stations. And it's similar. You go, we're going to do this. We're going to pass this law. But they, but they are the ones who hear we're gonna the cancel, laws. We're going to cancel student debt. No. And then a lawsuit comes in, and then one circuit won't take it, and then the eighth puts an injunction on everything, and now we're all sitting here going, well, what's going to happen? Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen, because I am a historian. So you, and this is not going to be a mystery to you, revolution is what happens. If the system isn't working, mm-hmm. then it is either fixed or there is revolution. That's, that, that is just You're how You're saying the word that I don't, I know in my heart of heart is the flip side of this coin that we are uh, teetering on. I oh, know that. Yes. And I don't want to say it out loud, but you did. And I'm glad you did, you know, and you know, we've, you've got kids, I've got kids. And I know how revolutions go. Right. Right. It's tough when you say the word that people go, oh, you obviously want it. I, oh my God. No. I don't want it. And also, I don't, it isn't even about what I want. People simply do not live under a system they believe is unfair for long. And this is why it's also so insidious when you have a situation like we have where our two political parties live in two different realities. Yeah. Because I we we are sitting here talking about the necessity of revolution if your system is truly broken. And the the population, the American population that stormed the Capitol on January 6th believed that same thing. I know. And so one is found, you're all saying the same thing, but you're literally working with a different set of facts. We're pointing to a corrupt Supreme Court that seems to be colluding with the legislature to overturn the will of the people. And they are looking at a dark secret society that has stolen the election and is lying to everybody. These are really thin lines. These are really murky reflections and that one is true and the other one isn't is just i'm telling you historically not enough to prevent this right we've gone through the darkness of the past and we've covered kind of the dark cloud that we find ourselves in now what gives you hope today that you and i and our children will be able to live in a system that we can recognize as justice I, I love the new justice. I love uh, Kentaji um, Brown-Jackson. I think she's great. I think she came off on fire on the court. Also, you know, so now Sotomayor can lead or she can walk side by side, at, you know, and Elena Kagan can join as well. But, you know, we have some fierce women on the court that are not just, they're doing the work as women do and putting their ideas out there. It is a, incumbent upon us as citizens to demand different. I I cannot, we have to push back against the Supreme Court. They will, if we allow them to just exist for the rest of our lifetime, I don't have hope that it's going to go well. We're facing, as you've been mentioning, climate change, and we're not going to push back against the fossil fuel industry without a Supreme Court 
that is fighting for people. So my hope is in in the power of of average people like we've always done. You know, we've oh this is this is an eternal fight. Yeah. So in some ways, you know, it's always been the fight. Yeah. And we are just on the front lines now. Yeah. So something about being a mom and having a young child puts a lot of these things into perspective because when I have to just put into words what happened, you feel very quickly that's unfair. That's bullshit. That's a lie. That's manipulation. Once you are just that clear and confident on it, then I don't think it needs too much more clarity, too much more definition. That's not fair. <laughs> it shouldn't yeah. be that way. And if it shouldn't, then advocate for it, right? Absolutely. We all have one voice. How do we use it? Mm hmm. Mm. I use it to sing. No, I don't. And thank God. Um, Mary Whiteside, it has been an absolute delight to have you on this podcast. Um, I encourage everybody to go and listen to your podcast. May it displease the court. And um, if I ever really fuck up, I'm going to ask you to defend me. Okay. <laughs> Deal? I'll take the California bar just for you. Thanks. I'll make sure I commit all crimes in New York just Please. in case. Okay, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, may it please the court indeed. Oh, thanks again to Mary Whiteside. And go and listen to her incredibly informative podcast, May It Displease the Court, on Spotify. As for us, we have a new episode every other Wednesday, and the next one is very special, as my guest is my one and only mom. Ah, Lana Adams recently visited us in LA from her small town in Wisconsin. And when I asked her if she'd be a guest, not only did she say yes, she kind of had to, um, she assigned me a doozy, the Radium Girls. Now these were the women who worked with glow-in-the-dark radioactive paint in the 1920s, 1930s, and then like suddenly what seemed like one of the coolest jobs in the world turned horribly tragic. It's a great story and something of a continuation of the historical fuckery by the system you've just heard. <laughs> Our theme song was composed and performed by Kat Perkins and Eric Warner. A reminder that you can find my sources, links to the books, documentaries, and articles I reference in the summary of this episode or by emailing us hilfpodcast at gmail.com or messaging us on social media at hilfpodcast. This has been Hilf. History, I'd like to fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, reminding you that history is a party, and everybody's coming.